and especially as a woman <laughs> and a person of color, it is about raising awareness every single day with everything you do. And until we have that gender pay gap, ethnicity pay gap really closed, it's always gonna be the driving factor, like who made the most money, who gets paid the most. And your average person is being deluded into thinking it's some, you know, sort of highfalutin <laughs> career path, when in fact, everything has an aspect of technology in it now. From the first time founders to the funds that back them, innovation needs different. Our episode partner, HSBC Innovation Banking is proud to accelerate growth for tech and life science businesses, creating meaningful connections and opening up a world of opportunity for entrepreneurs and investors alike. Discover more at www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com en-gb. Hello and welcome to the UKTN podcast, a weekly chat with the movers and shakers of the UK tech industry and the destination for all things UK tech related. And this week we are joined by Suki Fuller, founder of Mirabu and co-lead of Tech London Advocates Women in Tech. That's a mouthful. <laughs> um, <laughs> welcome Suki. I know, as we all know, there's a lot there, but good morning, good day, good evening, wherever you are. But today, good morning, Jane. Cover all bases. I like that. Now, I'm going to start with an award that you've recently won, voted most influential woman in tech, or one of the most influential women in tech by Computer Weekly in 2023. And before we talk about that award, I just want to do a quick shout out to Computer Weekly. What a magnificent job they did on the post office scandal reporting. And long may those trade publications continue to break great stories. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about you. So tell me about your award. Oh, we could talk about that too. Um, but my award, yeah, it was really quite surreal because I, as I always tell everybody, and I said it in my acceptance speech, is that as an intelligence analyst, you're always in a supporting role. My whole career has been about supporting leaders, supporting whoever the stakeholder is, the key person. So to be recognized as somebody who is supporting others it shines a light on those of us that are not always at the front. Even though I run my own company, I'm still in a support role when I am helping other people and other companies and organizations. So it was really nice at the same time. It still feels sur surreal. People think that I'm quite an extrovert, but I'm a learned extrovert. <laughs> I am in those instances having to be outgoing when I'm out in public. Yeah, I'll talk to people. I'll interact but as a lot of people know, I really do function well in those environments, but being at home. <laughs> <laughs> I think we, we can all we can all sympathize with that. Let's talk about what you won the award for, which was at least in part some of the work that you're doing to advocate for women in tech. And 
I liked something that you'd said about the kind of needs and the things we need to look at, because often with this problem, I feel like we talk about it in very general terms. And actually, it's good to drill down on what needs to change and how we go about changing those. And you've highlighted a few things, the lack of girls in STEM, which has always been a problem from as long as I've been a tech reporter. We've had this problem with girls not necessarily wanting to go into sciences. Although I have to say my daughter is planning to do a science at university. Things are changing. You also highlight that there are too few women in senior leadership roles. And I think I read this week that actually those numbers have gone down again, which is quite depressing. And of course, the ongoing struggle for firms to get gender equity and race equity for that matter. So let's break those kind of issues down, shall we? Should we start with the education? Because I know that education is really quite important to you and what we do to get more girls through the pipeline, as it were. One of the big issues that I've seen is that it's been well documented is the drop off that cliff where girls get to around 12, 13. And even if they've had a great interest in tech, if they've been involved in clubs, they just no longer do it. And I was at a school recently and I was having a discussion with somebody. We we were talking about the male gaze and it does seem to correlate with when girls become preteens or teenagers and they begin to have more attention from boys and not in that collegial way that they do when they're a kid, when, when they're a small kid. And so it's diverging their attention to being people pleasers pleasing others with what they do, what they say, how they act, what they're wearing, what they look like. And it changes their perception of who they are. And I think it's one of those fascinating areas that you recognize, especially as a woman, you think, oh yeah, there was this point where I was more interested in what guys or whoever you're attracted to thought about you than what you were actually doing. That actually is interesting. I've not heard that as a theory before, but it perhaps answers some of the questions about why girls that go to all girls school seem to do better. What can be done about that, though? Because that's just part of growing up, right? That actually was what started the discussion because it was an all girls school deputy head that I was speaking to. And it was a male. And he was saying that they have a lot of girls that have this interest and then it just falls off. And he was asking, what can we do to really bolster, re-bolster those numbers? Because he said when they come into the school, they're really great. But he says they still have an interest. But because the school is now mixed before, it was just an all-girls school. And now they have some mixed sixth form. And he says he can see the difference that when some of those girls and some of the ones that are near that age that see the boys start to change their behavior. And I'm not sure what can be done, except I went to an all-girls secondary school for one year. And I think I had a fully formed personality at that point that afterwards, yeah, while I was, oh, I want to change going to an American school system and it's mixed at the same time. I was a little bit of an outlier because I had an English accent. I was wearing Doc Martens. <laughs> I liked some alternative groups that American culture really didn't care for, like Depeche Mode. Nobody was listening to that stuff in the U.S. when I got there. And <laughs> I was a, a black teen with an English accent. 
So I was already an outlier. So the fact that I did like some of those things wasn't abnormal. And I don't know. I really, I think about this all the time, whenever, especially when I have friends who have early teens, I'm just like, all you can do is just really ingrain into them, do what you like to do. And you'll Mm. find the people that like to do that too. And that's who you need to be with. You don't need to worry about what other people are thinking because there's so many kids that worry so much about the pressures of what society have told them they need to do, what they need to look like and how they need to think and who they should be friends with. So you have all of these added pressures that we, as anybody over the age of 35, didn't have. We didn't have social media like this. We didn't have television in the same way that is broadcast now, 24 hours a day, so many different channels coming at you. We didn't have our mini computers in our hands with our mobiles. So you have all of these other facets and advances of technology. God, may we love it, but also at the same time hate it for (laughs) the advances that it's brought. But at the same time, I think it distracts from the actual real world, everyday existence, being a human one-to-one with other humans. And what was your experience in both the UK and the US education system? Was it very similar over there in terms of girls not necessarily choosing to go down the sort of science, tech, maths route, or was it easier there? It was a little different. I had a very, (laughs) as I said, I'm an outlier of outliers. I had a very... (laughs) untraditional, for lack of a better word, quote unquote, untraditional existence as a child. I lived in multiple countries. I went through different schooling systems. So my perception of what I deem as normal might be different, might be slightly skewed. (laughs) I'd say there, there is a difference. I'd say the The British school system, when I was in British school, from a young age, was very much steeped in good fundamentals. I knew more about American geography than people that I went to school with when I got into the system. You you didn't know this? You don't know your state capitals? (laughs) Meanwhile, I knew that. The firm grasp on geography of the world, the technical aspects of science, I transferred into an American school And some of those kids didn't even know what a Bunsen burner was. Meanwhile, I'm like, hey, look, you can blow stuff up. (laughs) So it was was really weird. And then I don't know where that lapses. It seems almost like from maybe 12 to 12 to 16, it seems like there is a big hop. And maybe it might be that in the American school system, you stay in school in high school until you're 18. And Mm. so you're not actually making a choice, a career choice, until you're 18 or 19, 17, 18 or 19, Mm -hmm. when you're deciding where you want to go for university, also known as college here. Those in the British system, by 16, and actually by an earlier age, by what, 14, when you're having to choose what you want to do, GCSEs Mm. and all that good stuff, you have to make that choice when you're 14. That's ridiculously young. It is. At 14, I don't even remember 
<laughs> I, I think I wanted to be an archaeologist for a long time. And gosh knows, I was really good at digging stuff up. But, but I think about that now, like, gosh, if I had to stick with that till now, if I stuck in, the, if we'd been in the British school system and I had maintained that, I don't imagine what my life would be like because I don't think I would have been an archaeologist. It's such a word. And of course, all of that pipeline is important in the next stage, which is getting women into senior leadership roles. So let's, uh, what's the biggest issues there, do you think? And, And is there a solution to that? Because obviously there's fewer women in the for the picking of those roles for a start so do firms need to sort of do a bit of positive discrimination or how how do you see us getting that a bit the stats a bit better in that i'd say it's always going to be about education first of all you don't have the teachers that even can teach this because there's that big hole right now we're trying to fix an issue where we don't even have the staff we don't have the teachers to teach even English now. We just have a big hole in education. And I think there's also, in some regard, an ageism when it comes to people that are older that could be giving their brain power to teaching, but they're seen as, oh, they, they're, they're going to be out of touch with technology. You can train people on how to use technology. Training them in the skill of business, you can't, that's experience, that's practical application. So I think there's this big hole that needs to be filled and it needs to be the people that everybody's trying to force out of work, anybody who's over 50, who's over 55, and they say, oh, you can't come back in the world, the workforce and give your skills saying, well, guess what? Those are the people that you should be reaching out and saying, hey, maybe you can't come back into the workforce where exactly you want, but you could be passing on your knowledge to the next generation. You could be teaching. How does that sound? And then bolster that, let people have their retirement pay, but say, hey, can you teach a few hours a week? I I think there's so many areas where we have all of these people that could be doing and adding to society that they just throw them to the wayside and say, well, you're no good to us anymore. And it's all because of just the advances in technology, but garbage in, garbage out. If you don't have the right people to put the information into the system, you're going to get the same old travel app, you're going to get the same old transportation app. And it's just going to keep being this cycle that keeps just reiterating junk. Let people put into the system what they've learned. It's valuable. It's what's worked. And if you build on that foundation, you can build better things. And I guess that doesn't just apply to getting people back into teaching, but for companies looking for staff, they could have better training programs to take people that come from a background that doesn't necessarily have any tech in it, but those people could be trained to do it. I'm an arts graduate. I've ended up writing about technology. I mean, it's not hard to make that crossover, is it really? No, and I I don't understand why people have this really deluded perception of, one, what tech is. That's a whole nother issue. When people Mm. use the word, I think they've romanticized it so much in the past that when you're an average person that's sitting at home that just has a smartphone or maybe a computer, but they don't know anything else, they think when people say, oh, tech, that it is some big name. It's like a Bill Gates and it's about an IBM. And they don't realize that 
the person that owns that sweet shop down the road, they're having to deal with tech when they're doing their billing, when they're running their the systems, everything, their bookkeeping. That's tech. And your average person is being deluded into thinking it's some highfalutin career path when in fact mm. everything has an aspect of technology in it now. Ever since the motor car has been invented, the telephone, the telegraph, it's always had it. Everybody's been using it, but they just haven't called it technology. HSBC Innovation Banking, our partner for this episode, provides commercial banking services, expertise, and insights to the technology, life science and healthcare, private equity, and venture capital industries. To find out why innovation needs different, go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com slash en gb. One of the things that I really liked, I think it was in your speech, was talking about not necessarily pigeonholing people as well. I think you used to phrase something like being a woman in tech isn't a career <laughs> in itself. And that really resonated with me because actually as a journalist, I always used to be asked to write a piece for International Women's Day. You know, and my answer was always, I'll write about women every day if they're doing good things and if they've got interesting companies and interesting things to add to my stories. I didn't want it to be specific thing. How do we get around that? And also this often in the founder world, you'll see a woman being a female founder, but you'll never see a man called, you know, a male founder. What do we do about that? Or do we just need to, to, to single women out to start with to put them on pedestals in order to have them as mentors? I struggle with this all the time because as the co-lead of the Tech London Advocates Women in Tech group, <laughs> I always think we don't have a men in tech group. We just have tech London advocates. But at the same time, I think until we get to a place where women are recognized just for being tech leaders, we're going to need groups like this for support because we're not recognized for the things that we do now. We're not recognized for the things that have happened in the past that have been down to women. They've always been hijacked and taken over by men. And it happens continually today. It frustrates me all the time when people say, oh, women in tech and just winning this award, <laughs> most influential women in tech. Sometimes I cringe because I think, oh, it's really great. It's lovely to be recognized by this. But I do look forward to the day when we have a list and it's just, most influential person in tech. And we do have that list. And it is often a man who in that list of top 10, maybe eight of them are men and three of them are women. Women, once in a while, it might be a woman in the top five, but not very often. And I think, wait a minute, wh why is that? And unfortunately, it usually comes down to money. And until we have that gender pay gap, ethnicity pay gap, really closed, it's always going to be the driving factor, like who made the most money, who gets paid the most. No, that's not where I think the real value is. Although it is nice if you had a lot more money. <laughs> that's a good point about the gender thing. And actually, we've seen, I think it was the Brits, wasn't it, tried to do a non-gendered award ceremony, and then it ended up just men winning it. So, you know, it can be a difficult thing. 
But as you say, you know, firms are now really trying to get that gender equity and race equity. And it's something that's at the forefront of firms' minds now, which is great. But you think that in order to achieve it, it's just a question of paying people more, do you? No, I don't think just paying people more. I think there's a recognition that needs to be afforded when you're looking at things in society. And I I don't think that people understand history because historically there have been people with different ethnic backgrounds that have been at the forefront of industries that have created things, but they've not been recognized because of the way society was at that time. But it's continued and perpetuated through history and ignored. And when it does actually come to fruition that people go, oh my gosh, this person invented this and somebody else took it like the light bulb. It was then taken by Edison and made more popular. But fact of the matter is he didn't invent it. (laughs) And it's when you look at instances like that, but the way that history is taught, it's always by the victors. It's always by the people in power. And to change that knowledge and to change the mindset and perception of people in society, it, it just, it's an everyday slog. I don't know if I'd, I'd say exactly that word, but it is an everyday, not battle, but it's just an everyday of raising awareness. And that is pretty much what you, I think everybody's life, and especially as a woman and a person of color, it is about raising awareness every single day with everything you do. It's about awareness, advocating for people to understand that, and action, taking action. I would say that the three A's, you know, awareness, advocacy, action, because there's no point in raising awareness without at least advocating for a change. And there's no point in advocating for a change and not actually acting on it. And I think that's pretty much why I am working with and co-leading the Women in Tech group. That's why at first, while I did cringe and every year I cringe, I'm like, why do we have an influential Women in Tech? And then I go, wait a minute, in order for change to happen, there has to be somebody highlighting that a change is needed. And if you're not highlighting that a change is needed, you're just basically just going along with what is the status quo. And there's one thing that I constantly remind myself every day. And I get up and I go, change. Change is good. People don't like change. But if you're not changing, that pretty much means you might be dead. And then we know that that is not true because bodies deteriorate. So there's still change happening when you die. It sounds really macabre, but it's true. Change is life and life is change. And if there's not any change, there's no growth and you have to grow. And if you're not growing, then you're just going to be a very stagnant, boring person. And you got to fire those gray cells. And in order for the next generation and the next generation to be better, you have to incite that change to happen. People need to grow. And change is about growth. Growth is a great point and your tips are also very good. But I want to talk very quickly before we finish about your day job. Mm. 
as the founder of Mirabu. And I love your job title, by the way, analytical storyteller. I've always thought that one of the biggest issues we have with data is actually being able to harvest good stories from it. So tell me some good data stories. So I always tell people that title came about because I tell the story of data. That's and and even yourself as a tech journalist, that's what you're doing. You're telling the story of data. And a lot of people that work with data, and not so much anymore. I'd say we have a really a large amount of people that are really great storytellers. But the hardest part of what I do is seeing data, seeing information, and just gleaning from that the data. And then being able to take all of that really disparate data, which is probably my skill set most of all, is being able to take lots of different pieces of disparate data and adding that in with some insight, a lot of insight, because I have a very wide and diverse experience base. I, I didn't just do one thing my whole career. And then I'm able to take a lot of those pieces talk to a lot of people that are experts, pull all of that information, pull all of that data together and help somebody, a stakeholder, a key stakeholder, understand what they can do, what they likely shouldn't do, what's a good place for them to actually move their company forward to and where they should avoid. And that's basically what I do is I help people find white spaces or sometimes avoid white spaces. <laughs> Do you think that, that firms generally are doing a good job at utilising their data? Because all firms now are collecting no. vast amounts of data, aren't they? Are they using it well? <laughs> no. Uh, I think people are doing the catch-all. They think that if they capture a lot of data, they'll be able to sift through it and find something of value. But too much is sometimes not good because you think that because you have all the data, you'll have all the information that you need. And sometimes that's not, it's just not correct because you just don't, you need to not be narrowly focused, but you need to have some focus. There's always going to be outliers, but you can't capture everything and think you're going to be able to sift through it. Because if that's the case, then we would be living in a utopic world and everybody would be happy because of all the data that we have about it. And uh, we know that's not the case. So there are so many things that, like the, the conundrum of information and how much we have, how much is too much, what exactly we're giving, how much we're giving and what we shouldn't give. And for me right now, I think that a lot of companies are taking advantage of the naivety of people and taken a lot more than they actually need. And they're not giving anything of value back to people. They're just using it for what they think is going to be beneficial for them. But a lot of people are just giving, giving their information and their data freely without knowing they are. And that is the biggest, probably my biggest worry, is that people are sharing more of themselves, they're sharing more of their families, they're sharing more of their children without thinking about the long-term repercussions of how that's going to affect their children 20 years from now when they are adults. Because the way that information is monetized, 
has definitely changed in the last few years. I'm all about that. Stop sharing, Tin. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Stop sharing. Yeah. But continue sharing on podcasts, right? Share, sharing information on podcasts has <laughs> definitely got a future. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Just, you know, if your kid is under 13, I have to say this because it really, for me, blows my mind that if your child is not allowed to join a platform before the age of 13, why are you putting all of their information yourself on that platform before the age of 13? Mm. And stop, modify what you do. I think people need to be a lot more reflective about what they share. Mm. And as much as we all want to say sharing is caring, not sharing is also caring. It's a good point. And we could talk about data for a lot longer, but sadly, we've run out of time. Thank you, Suki Fuller, for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me, Jane. I really appreciate it. And thank you to everybody who's listening. We will be back with another episode next week. But in the meantime, you can keep up to date with all the latest UK tech developments at www.uktech.news. Don't forget to follow UKTN and myself on LinkedIn and X where you can get in touch with me with your suggestions and comments about the show. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. This podcast is brought to you by HSBC Innovation Banking, the power behind the UK's forward thinkers, future makers and leap takers. They're helping to ignite the bold ideas that reshape our world. Go to www.hsbcinnovationbanking.com slash en dash gb to find out how innovation needs different. Thank you.